0: There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Open your Bibles to chapter 14. We just prayed, and now we're going to study uh, the last part of chapter 14. 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. Corinth is a church, the Corinthian church, where there's all kinds of problems. They're focusing on things they shouldn't be and neglecting things that they uh, shouldn't neglect. And so we've come through uh, most of the Teaching on uh, speaking in tongues and prophecy and all of that. So now, where we are is verse 33, is where we left off. So um, let's see. Uh, Let's see. Verse uh, 32 says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, or subject to the prophets. Translation, no one can say in a church, well, the reason I was out of order and there was so much chaos was the Spirit overtook me and I couldn't help myself. This verse says that these. Uh, that's not true, that um, the Holy Spirit gives the gifts, but the gifts are subject to the prophets. They can control themselves. This whole chapter is about everything being done in order in a church. The reason is there was great chaos in their church services. Everybody's standing up, prophesying, speaking in tongues. It's kind of become a zoo, so to speak. So uh, verse 33 is where we're going to pick it up. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Great. That was great. (laughs) Thank you so much. I see uh, those of you on Zoom say amen. I saw somebody had a sign that said, nice beard. Not really. Still, <laughs> still growing in. Uh, any, I gotta Let me unfocus the camera a little. In any case, verse 33, I'm blushing. For God, this is a summary verse for the whole three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, about spiritual gifts. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. There has to be order. He mentions uh, unbelievers coming into the service uh, earlier in this chapter, and that if there's great disorder, people are going to think, this church is crazy. Let's get out of here, Harriet, and they'll leave. God is a God not of disorder. He's a God of order. All you need to do is look at science uh, and the stars and gravity, and there's so much order in down to the molecular level, the atoms. God is a God of great order in fact all of that order is an evidence for the existence of you guessed it god because to say there is no god and everything just happened is to say a million trillion coincidences all took place right kind of impossible verse 34 women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Let's just skip over those verses and we'll... (laughs) Oh, no. No, we don't do that here. Uh, This is a tough thing. I'm going to give you some context that will make it a little easier to understand, hopefully, and nobody's thrown a shoe at me yet, but the night is young. So let's go back to verse uh, 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. Does he mean that universally? And the answer is no. There's a specific situation he's talking about. Scholars have two ideas about this. They might both be right. I'll tell you what they are in a second. Um, How do we know he doesn't mean uh, categorically, women can't speak in a church. Okay, here's the reasons. Number one, he already talked about women uh, prophesying in church uh, in a verse chapter 11, verses 4 to 16. So that's, that can't be what he's talking about. At the time of Christ, in, there was in the temple, a woman named Anna, who was a prophetess. And she spent all her time in the temple. Women have great value, and all kinds of jobs they can do in a church. What they cannot do biblically in a church is lead as the head pastor or teach men. Uh, don't blame me for this. First Timothy three, Titus one gives the uh, instructions about elders, which are supposed to be the husband of one wife. And last time I checked, that means it's a man. And there's also two genders, in any case. uh, So first of all, they're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. We know about women submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, in any case. So women can share a word in church, uh, chapter 11, 4 to 16 talks about that, but he's putting a limit on it. Okay, look at verse 35, and that should make it more clear. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Keep in mind the context, this is a church that's out of order, great chaos. As, is true, as was true in the synagogues and the temple, it is thought that they carried this over at least early on to Christian churches, meaning what? The men sat here, the women sat there. It wasn't husband and wife sitting side by side as it would be today, okay? So there's all kinds of things happening and people are prophesying and Harold is in row two and Louise is in row nine and is yelling, Harold, is that right? What was that? What did she say? And there's even more chaos. So if they have a question, they want to inquire about something, They need to ask their own husbands when they get home. That's what it's probably uh, talking about. Keep in mind, Peter on on Pentecost, when he gives that sermon in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel where he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, which is a woman, right? women uh, uh have take a submissive role in church leadership and in marriage not because they are inferior or not as smart often they're smarter but in terms of role in terms of nature we are this all the same uh, galatians 3 says at the foot of the cross there is neither Slave nor free, which is financial differences. Greek nor Jew, which is racial differences. Male nor female. We're all one in Christ. In terms of Jesus, in terms of salvation, we're all, uh, there's no hierarchy. But in terms of role, men have the leadership role. Just as Christ, who is God, submits to his father, uh, God the father. Um, We already talked about that. Um, So, yeah, verse 35 they are being disruptive. They need to wait and ask. Uh, the word for speak is laleo in Greek, and it means to argue or chatter. So there's debate going on in the church, and there just needs to be more order. That's all he's really saying there. As I said, he already said women could could speak and prophesy, speak in tongues, and what have you. Um, so now Paul's going to get a little sarcastic in verse 36. Just want to warn you. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? He's being sarcastic here. Okay. He's saying, oh, are you Corinthians, the mother church? I didn't know that. Um, Total sarcasm. And obviously the word of God didn't originate with them. He's about to say uh, that he brought it to them. You'll see in the next chapter. So the word of God came from the disciples, right? which came from Christ, which came from the Father. They aren't the ones that make doctrine. they're not the only people it's reached. They need to do what the other churches do. Um, let's see. Um, so they're being a little pretentious. they're not the mother church, as I said. so he's telling them to be teachable, to be humble, and to be willing to listen. You have to ask yourself, uh, if there's disorder in a church, who would want disorder in the church? God? No. Jesus? No. Holy Spirit? No. Satan? Definitely. Right? I'm fond of saying Satan would rather deal with people in a church than people in a bar or a brothel. Those people are already on his team. He's concerned with what goes on here. In any church, because he hates the Lord Jesus. He hates the salvation that Christ brings. So, verse 37 if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that I, what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. He's an apostle. He's already defended his apostleship earlier in this uh, epistle, this letter. So, he's saying anyone who s- thinks he's a prophet, implying some may think they're prophets who aren't in that church. Um, If they think they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I'm writing to is the Lord's own command. Paul is just repeating what the Lord has told him to say, and that's the way all the other churches are run. That's his whole point. I want you to turn briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So from 1 Corinthians Take a right and go, I'm gonna say seven books, maybe first Timothy's right in that section where they all start with T, two Thessalonian books, and then first and second Timothy, and then Titus, so we want first Timothy, mm-hmm. chapter four, verse one, the spirit that's the Holy Spirit, first Timothy chapter four, verse one. The spirit clearly says that in the latter times. Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, doctrines of demons. You say, you're talking about in a church? Yes. It's very subtle how it changes. You notice in this church, it's a Corinthian church, it's already starting. They're starting to say, well, we know that's what Paul says, but we've got the new stuff. Have you noticed in advertising with products, there's Tide detergent, right? But then there's new Tide, new and improved Coca-Cola or whatever it may be, right? It it works. It gets people to buy the pro. Oh, it's new. We should get the new one. We have the old one. The same is true with Christianity. People get bored with the Bible and and it's it's, just so much here. How can you get bored with it? but they do. And the person that gets the attention is the guy that says, I have it, a new teaching. Walter Martin used to say, if it's new in the church, if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Nobody's adding to the Bible. So they would have to get it from here. Somehow everybody's missed it for a couple thousand years, not likely. So they've got a pretentious attitude. The danger is once you let go of the scripture, once you let go of um, that being the final court of arbitration, once you let go of the apostles who were alive at this time, Paul's writing, being the final source, then you're open to anything. Galatians Paul writes to a church where people have crept into that church and assumed leadership roles and they were telling people in Galatia the Christians it's great you've got Jesus he's the messiah that's wonderful but y'all need to become Jews you need to get, the men need to get circumcised you need to eat kosher food you need to follow the whole old testament law That's not what Christ taught. He came to fulfill the law. Read Colossians 2, talks about the fulfillment of the law. So there were all kinds of little offshoots happening. Satan never tries to go for a home run in a church. He just likes to get you off base a little bit. And the little at a time, it gets worse and worse. This church already has problems, as I said, because there's so much chaos, people prophesying stuff. Um, Go back to 1 Corinthians with me for a second. I think it's chapter 11. Mm -hmm -hmm. No, I think it's 12, actually. Yeah, look at chapter 12. People are prophesying in that church. And somebody has stood up in that church and said, Jesus is accursed. Look at 12.3. Therefore, I tell you that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed or Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Somehow, somebody said that, and they were in such a frenzy, they went, praise God, amen, to such a crazy statement as that. Okay, go back to 14 with me. So, verse 38. But if anyone ignores this, meaning this teaching that he's giving in these three chapters about gifts, they will themselves be ignored, NIV has, um, because it's not biblical. We, in this country, value greatly, and by the way, it's dying, but we value greatly, don't we? Free speech. It's really dying in America, whether you know it or not. Um, But we value it. And I want to say that in the church, in America, we value free speech, but there's a limit. No one in our church here, I know the elders would not allow this. No one could say, I'd like to address the church for a few minutes. First of all, the elders would say, No, thank you. What are you going to say? Why don't you tell us first? Let us check you out. This church, it's a free for all. No one uh, ought to be able to get up. Freedom of speech is great. But you can't get up in a church and say, You know, Muhammad is the real Christ, not Jesus for example. Or can you imagine? I I can't imagine any church that would allow that. Well, free speech, we're very open, and that's too open, right? You can be so open-minded that your brains are falling out. Amen. Back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay, none of the brains have fallen out yet. Verse 39, after two, uh, almost three chapters of really chiding them about order in the church and not going overboard, there's a tender note here. Therefore, my brothers, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues. He's just come through a whole chapter where he's explained eight ways from Sunday that there's a legit thing called tongues in that era, but prophecy is better in every way. Prophecy is the teaching of the Word of God occasionally right out of the word of God. Occasionally it is direct. Some Someone gets a message from God and delivers it. If that happens, we can't just say, well, that was Jim and Jim is very biblical, so it must be true. What do you do with that? You do what the Bereans did in the book of Acts. They were considered more noble. They checked out what Paul said and compared it with known scripture. It has to line up. If it doesn't, you got to throw it out. That's number one, the Bible. Number two, in any church, there ought to be elders. Those elders ought to analyze what this guy said and decide it's biblical or not. They're supposed to know the Bible well, or they wouldn't be elders. Uh, One of the qualifications. Be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. What he's saying is at that time, there's a legit gift called tongues. I've been hard on you tongue speakers. Don't stop it. Don't stop people. But check it out. It has to be, he's already given the rules, two or three at the most in a church service. So not 30 people all screaming at the same time. And there has to be an interpretation. Somebody speaks in a foreign language, they don't know that's what a tongue is, a language. And what did he say? I don't know. Does anybody know? No. So what good was it, is his point. Unless Richard has the gift of interpretation and stands up and says, thus saith the Lord. What he just said was, And then it has to line up with scripture so don't forbid it but be eager to prophesy to teach may i say that is a gift on the one hand the gift of teaching the gift of prophecy but on the other hand it is seldom a gift where someone i never ever studied the bible and all of a sudden god downloaded 26 commentaries into my head probably not. You look at the people who know the word well, you find people that s- studied and read and used cross-references cross to go to the other books where the same subject is spoken about. They looked up words in, dic- in Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. They studied to show themselves approved. Very important that the word of God is not diluted, that we don't leave anything out. That's why I jokingly said, let's skip those two verses. Um, okay. Okay. Verse 40, summary statement, but everything should be done in a fitting or proper and orderly way, just like the universe, just like the human body, there ought to be order in a church. You go to a church where there's disorder, that's a sign you might want to check out what they believe and maybe find another church. In any case, chapter 14, 13 is all about love, right in the middle of a sandwich of 12 and 14, which are about spiritual gifts. 13, the whole point of it is, spiritual gifts are great, but if you don't have love, it doesn't even matter if you have the gifts. To the umpteen degree, it means nothing without love. Now we're on to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible. Chapter 15 is the longest uh single discussion about resurrection in the whole Bible. That's the first thing. Uh, When people gather for memorials, for funerals, at gravesides, you often hear parts of chapter 15. Resurrection, the hope of the Christian faith. Um, I got to give you a little uh, background, first of all. Greeks the Greeks, this is a Greek church, Corinth is in Greece. The Greeks, as a culture, did not believe in, listen, resurrection, okay? They, they had a belief, and even um, the earlier the guys, Aristotle, um, Socrates, all of them wrote about this, that the body, they thought, the body is inherently evil. I live in a tomb, that's one of their sayings, I can't wait to be a soul that is free from this body. So the body they thought was inherently evil, the spirit was good. They did believe that there's an afterlife and my spirit goes on. But the idea of a resurrection of a dead body was absolutely foreign to them and and kind of sickening actually to them. When Paul preaches in Athens, he mentions the resurrection and they laugh at him. And Acts. I think it's 17, but I could be wrong. Um, so there's that cultural difference there. The body's a hindrance. I'm a poor soul shackled to a corpse. That was another saying they had. So the fact that Christianity, and this is something we're going to hammer home tonight, this chapter is a whole chapter on, and by the way, look at it. It's a long chapter, a whole chapter on resurrection for this reason. The whole center of Christianity, surprisingly, is not the sayings of Jesus. I'm not saying they're not important. They are so important, what he said. He spoke with more wisdom than anybody. The center of Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. Although all of those things are true, that's not the center, the core of Christianity. When you peel the onion and get to the core of Christianity, it's not a series of do's and don'ts, laws, it's not behavior, it's not uh, Christ's teachings, it's not Christ's healings. All those things are important, don't get me wrong. Christianity centers on one thing a person named Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection, which for them, especially his death being crucifixion, the worst kind of death in that culture, not even spoken about in in proper circles, you know, kings and queens and wealthy people wouldn't even say the word. It was so gross and bloody. And we've talked about this before. I don't say this to be, um, to, to make you cringe, but you see paintings, depictions, or statues um, in churches of Jesus on the cross, right? And he's got a little loincloth on, right? Not true. They crucified people completely naked. That wouldn't be proper in a church to have a naked Jesus, so somebody figured out, let's put a little loincloth on him, and I understand. But The whole point was total shame and the worst suffering imaginable. To make that guy that went through that, your hero, was also a mind blower for these people. Let alone the idea that he would die this bloody criminal's death, the worst criminal's death there was. And then, on the third day, rise again, wait for it, physically, okay, that was... Completely incomprehensible to these people. Paul knows that. You're going to find out when we get into this chapter that people in this church are teaching it's not really a physical resurrection. There's no resurrection, including Jesus. People have believed all kinds of things about the resurrection. The resurrection is the heart of Christianity. You're going to hear Paul say if the resurrection isn't true, we have nothing. Not less, Christianity has been diminished 20%, 80%. It's nothing now. If he didn't rise from the dead, then you're not going to rise from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, well, we'll get into all those reasons. Um, But here's how important it is. John 14, 19, Jesus says, because I, he's talking about himself rising from the dead, and he says, because I live, you shall live also. So can you see if he's wrong and he didn't live after he died, then that's an empty promise. We have no hope. The fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus is uh, often called the most indisputable fact of in ancient history. So attested to, we'll get into it, the proofs for it and what have you, Um The founders of every world religion, except Christianity, are all still dead. Mohammed died, Buddha, Confucius, Abraham and Moses from Judaism, they died. You're saying they didn't go to heaven? No, no, they went to heaven, Abraham and Moses, but they died and they stayed dead. Jesus is the only one. Joseph Smith of Mormonism died physically, stayed dead physically. Now keep your finger here. I want you to go to Romans 10, 9 and 10, please. Romans 10. When you hear it, you're going to go, oh yeah, I've heard this one before. I want you to see how important Christianity is. How can I be saved? I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Romans 10 One book to the left of 1 Corinthians, 9 and 10. Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Same word used for God the Father. Lord means boss. He's not my advisor. He's not just my Savior. He's my Lord. When he says, A, that's what I want, I want to do what he wants. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Listen to this. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What is implied there? That if you believe, if you call him Lord and you don't believe he was raised from the dead, you're not saved. It's a central doctrine of Christianity. Okay. Verse one. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Paul's going to use a series of proofs about the resurrection, and he's going to start with the gospel, the good news, right? And the good news involves Jesus paying for our sins on the cross, dying, and rising from the dead. So he wants to remind them. It's very important that we remind ourselves. Do you know that? Christianity is a series of reminders. You can't say, I'm a Christian. Yes. Do you read the Bible? Not anymore. Why? I already read it, right? You would do that with a novel. Yeah, I read that book. Are you going to read it again? No, I don't need to. This is a book you read over and over and over. And listen, if that sounds boring to you, try it. This is the third time I've taught through the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. I'm seeing stuff I never saw before. It happens. It'll happen next time if God lets me live long enough. It's a supernatural book. And uh, there's so much depth to it. It's incredible. So he's going to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them. He brought to them the gospel. And he didn't make it up. He didn't, admo- uh, you know, add to it, embellish it. That's what I was looking for. Instead, he just repeated what he got from Christ himself and from the apostles. The next phrase in verse 1 is, which you received. You heard it. You believed it. You received it. And you took your stand on it, saying you believed it. You received it. That's what we believe. So he's reminding them, since you received it and took your stand on it, why are you now waffling, saying, well, maybe there is no resurrection of the dead? Were there other resurrections in the New Testament? before Jesus's? You might be surprised to learn the answer is no. You say, wait, wait, Lazarus, Jairus's daughter, the widow of Nain's son, Jesus touches these people or calls to them, and they they were dead, yes, and they came back to life, yes. Resurrection, no. Well, then what is that? Resuscitation. How do I know that? Because you know what? They each died again. Can you imagine? Here we go again. I've been through this once. That little girl that he rose from the dead, Jairus' daughter, you know, little girl, grew up to be a woman, and eventually she died again. Resurrection is not temporary. It's permanent. Christian resurrection. I just wanted to cover that. Same for Lazarus, died again. So, Jesus is the first. Before we go too far in this chapter, you'll see that Paul calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. Have you ever heard that term in Bible circles? We're going to talk about what first fruits are. I think it's going to blow your mind, but I could be wrong. Um, Let's see. So he's saying, I want to remind you of that gospel. It was preached to you. You received it. You've taken your stand. By this gospel, verse 2, you are, present tense, saved, past tense. It's a done deal, he's saying. Don't add to it. Don't subtract to it. Don't let it go. Why do you say that? Because look at the next phrase in verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you firmly hold or hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. There is a hearing from the preaching, a receiving and then believing, and then the rest of your Christian life, there is the holding, the clinging to. That's why Hebrews says, Don't to Christians, listen, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. Translation Go to church. How often? Christmas and Easter? Would that do it? Is that okay? No? Christmas, Good Friday, and uh, listen regular meeting of Christians. Is this such a meeting? It is. But I got to tell you I believe this is not church per se. This is a Bible study. We don't have worship here. We don't uh we have a time of fellowship obviously and prayer. There's the teaching of the word, but there's something about the corporate worship of people um that makes it something a higher level. It's hard to explain. So we hold on how else do you hold on you go to church and that's all i need to do no you need to read the bible well i'm I'm here at a bible study yes i know i'm talking about every day think of it as spiritual food do you eat every day then you should eat spiritually every day put the bible in your house where you'll see it on the kitchen table Well, it's a small table. Put it next to your chair where you watch TV. Much better to read the Bible than to watch TV nowadays. Make sure you hold on to what you learn. Get into a small group. Learn the word. Pray. Fellowship with other believers. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Do you ever have a fire in a fireplace? All the logs together burn brightly. One log rolls away from the others. Do you know what's going to happen to that log? It's going to go out. Don't be the log that rolls away. We need each other. Fellowship. So um, you can hold on. Also, if you're able to do it, memorize certain portions of Scripture. I know that's a dirty word for some of you. I started memorizing Scripture early 1979, having been a waffling Christian for several years. Before that, memorizing Scripture changed my life, I got to tell you. Uh, and it will change yours. When you are away from a Bible or in the middle of the night and you can't sleep, if you can call to mind scriptures and say them to yourself, it's so powerful it'll blow your mind. As I say this every three or four weeks, trust me on this. Memorize Psalm 23. The Lord is my, it's six verses, that's all it is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is so comforting. That's not the only one, but that's just a good example. You can memorize one verse. That's a lot easier. Here's one I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wow. I say it to myself all day long. Okay, we have to hold on. That's what Paul's saying. You heard it, you believed it, you received it. That's why you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Okay, what's going on there? Okay, listen. Some people read that and say, ah, see, you can be a real, true, saved, born-again Christian with eternal life and lose your salvation. Not possible. If you hold on to it, and you believe until you die, you were truly saved. If you say you're saved and believe for nine years and then kind of never go to church and start doing drugs or whatever you do and leave God behind, the Bible teaches you were never saved. 1 John chapter 2, 19 and 20, John talks about people that were in the church and they're they're no longer going. He says, by their going, they showed they really weren't saved. They weren't really of us. This doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints. And before you pat yourself on the back that I'm still in, let me just tell you, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. He won't let you get very far. He'll let you move away a little, and then he'll reel you in on a short leash and make you look up one way or the other. My old pastor used to say, the only way some God can get some people to look up is to put them in a hospital bed, and there's nowhere to look but up, and they start going, what do I need to do, God? What, do, what does God have to do to get your attention, he used to say. So we need to hold on. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, if you hold to my teaching, some translations have, if you continue in my teaching in Christianity, you are really or truly my disciples. Implying what? If it was a fad you went through, a phase, and now you don't believe, you weren't really truly born again. By definition, someone that's born again has eternal life, right? If they had it for nine years and then they lost it, then it wasn't eternal life, was it? Eternal means eternal. God holds us Um, oh, go quickly to, I wasn't going to do it, but go to John chapter 10. We were just in John eight, go to John 10 and I'll show you what I mean. Mm -hmm. John chapter 10. So that's three books or so to the left. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm trying to find the verse I want. Uh, oh, there it is. Verse 27, John 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. That's you so far, right? Yes. And they shall never perish. Here it comes. You ready? No one can snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? Whose hand are you in? Christ's. Who can snatch you out of Christ's hand if you're truly saved? No one. Question. Could you snatch you out of Christ's hand? To do that, you'd have to be stronger than Christ, right? So the answer is no. Keep reading. My father who has given them to me, all the believers, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So whose hands are you in now? The father's hand and Jesus's hand. You can't possibly fall away. Those that appear to be Christians who fall away never were Christians to believe with. There's such a, to begin with, there's such a thing as a said faith as opposed to a real saving faith where the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. Once he moves inside of you, he unpacks and he doesn't move out. Let's keep rolling. So we have to hold firmly to the word preached. Otherwise, you've believed in vain a thought just occurred to me from the last chapter sorry one of those minds you know mental floss um it says desire to prophesy i meant to mention this that means desire to teach the word to preach the word listen you can desire that all you want but you have to learn it you have to know it so that it can come out of your mouth right you can't just i'm going to go teach what do you know not much but i'm going to teach anyway I would rather hear from somebody who knows, wouldn't you? Okay, that's all. That was a little rewind. Verse, uh, the end of verse two. Otherwise, you have believed in vain, meaning a said faith rather than a real faith. They thought they believed, they didn't really believe. They didn't hold on to it, it never really took root. Do you remember the parable Jesus tells about the soils? Some of it springs up, right? But then it's shallow roots and the sun scorches it, or birds take the seed away, or the rocks choke it out, and thorns and what have you. Sometimes there's a little growth for a little while and somebody seems like they're a Christian. Real Christians endure to the end the doctrine of the person of perseverance of the saints. Verse three Proof number one For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures this is by the way in like chapter 13 one of those passages we're going to go slow cuz there's so much in every verse i just want to warn you we're not going to speed through this first paul says what i received i passed it on you say where did he get it well he on the road to damascus he was a christian killer a christian hunter he hated Christianity. He was a Jewish Pharisee, a very well-known, smart guy. And he persecuted Christianity, persecuted Christians, and God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus. Jesus did. Do You remember the story? Acts, I think it's chapter, right around in chapter 9. So Christ teaches him the gospel. From there, you would think he goes right to Jerusalem. And the answer is, for years, he does not. Turn to Galatians, that's to the right from 1 Corinthians, uh, just two books over. After 2 Corinthians comes Galatians, and we want chapter 1, oh, it's on the next page, of Galatians, because I want you to see where did Paul get his knowledge. It might surprise you, it's unique. Chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. Here it comes, verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Isn't that amazing? You say, wait a minute. So Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, he didn't get with those guys and go, teach me, teach me the gospel. This is amazing. You say, well, then if he wasn't taught it, where did he get it? Verse, uh still I'm still in verse twelve. Nor was I taught it, rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He talks about how he persecuted the church. Uh it, next in the next few verses. Um but when, verse 15, God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach among the, preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, verse 17, to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, got his little bachelor's degree then he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, Paul was taught one-on-one supernaturally by God and Christ. That's what he's saying. When he gets to Jerusalem and he meets the apostles, they have heard about him and they don't trust him until they start hearing him talk about Jesus and they're blown away at how much he knows and how deep his faith is that he believes the exact same thing they did, and he wasn't hanging around with Jesus at the time of the uh, Jesus' ministry on the earth. Oh, we're late. Let's take our two-minute break right now and make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. We're going to stretch our aging bodies, and we'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. All right, we are back in uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Find your seats, if you will. All right, we've we're uh kind of parked on a verse here because there's so much in this verse. Back to 1 Corinthians 15 uh and verse 3. For what I received and we just talked about how he received it in uh in uh in the book of Galatians he went to Arabia and Studied with Jesus, basically, got his master's degree kind of thing. What I received, verse 3, I passed on to you or shared as of first importance. Okay, notice he didn't embellish it. He just received it and pass it on. And that's what we're supposed to do is receive the gospel and understand it and pass it on. We don't add to it, we don't subtract from it, we don't try to make it look attractive. There are seeker-sensitive churches, that's what they're called, sounds like a nice term. And do you know what they do? They water down the gospel and there's a church near here, I won't say which one, where the pastor told somebody in his office, I will not teach about judgment, hell, sin, repentance, it's just not, um, I don't want to offend anyone. That's not biblical. We're supposed to teach the whole counsel of God, right? That's like a doctor saying, I'm going to examine you and do some tests, but if you have cancer, I'm never going to tell you. <laughs> what? I can't. You can't help somebody that way, right? Okay, chapter 15, verse three. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, meaning not first in time, the primary most important thing. Okay, well, what is the most important thing? Here it is. First of all, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. Stop right there. That's the core of Christianity that Christ, meaning Jesus, was the Messiah. Christos in Greek means Messiah, same thing. That the Messiah, who was fully God and fully man, died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Do you see that? Okay, that's the phrase we're going to take apart, first of all. There are those who uh, try to... Um, to. Um, make the resurrection look false by saying, number one, he didn't really die. That's it. He swooned. It looked like he died. He was bloody. They put him in the tomb and in the cold tomb. A couple days later, with no food and water, um, he revived by himself, covered with 75 pounds of of spices and um, wrapped like a mummy, so he couldn 't move still or breathe, he somehow woke up and went right through the bandages and opened moved that huge stone and appeared, and he didn't really die. okay This says Jesus died. well, which is it? okay If you read the gospels, there are so many ways people tr- try to find a little hole to poke, um, uh, to show a fault in the theory of the resurrection, okay? Did he really die? Okay, first of all, most people that were crucified were whipped, right? To the point where some died from the whipping. That's first. Next, there's the soldiers who crucified him. In the Roman army, certain people, that was, imagine that being your job. We just want you to kill people. Criminals. Oh boy. Okay. Capital punishment. The soldiers, if they say we, we crucified Harold here and he's dead. If Harold isn't dead, the soldiers who crucified him are killed. So they were experts at killing and knowing he's really, truly dead. Right? Number one, uh, so he did totally die there is no way around that um, we're going to get to the word there that says the scriptures right and that you might be surprised to learn he means the old testament because the new Testament's being written as this is being written there are no new testament scriptures there may be a few already done um, first of all that christ that's the messiah died So that's how far we are for our sins. That's the reason he died. He died in our place. All the guilt on all who would believe, all that shame and guilt, he took the punishment that we deserved. Could anybody else have done that? Why didn't Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, uh, David, Moses, why didn't one of them do it? The problem is you got to be sinless to be the Messiah. He's the perfect, blemishless lamb. He dies for our sins. We're going to take a detour in a second and go to Isaiah 53. You can start turning there if you want. But he died for our sins according to the Old Testament scriptures. Wait a minute. The Old Testament, you're talking about the Jewish scriptures? Yes. Did they say Jesus would die for our sins? Remember, Old Testament Jewish scriptures. The answer is yes. It's all over the place. Um, we'll get to well. Let's go to Isaiah fifty-three. Why not? So Isaiah fifty-three. So that's roughly the middle of your Bible. If you if the middle of your Bible looks like it's Proverbs or Psalms, take a right, find Isaiah fifty-three. Isaiah fifty-three um, is never read in synagogues today? Ever? Well, as part of the Old Testament, don't they have weekly readings? And Yes, they never read, I'm not kidding, Isaiah 53. They just don't do it. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of the suffering servant, someone, Messiah, who is dying for other people. I want you to read it with an open mind, forget you're a Christian, I mean you know about Jesus and all that, and you tell me who's being spoken of here. This is the Jewish Bible written hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. Israel is dry ground at the time Jesus shows up. He's a tender shoot. He's just a little child. Here's the only verse that tells you what Jesus looked like. Verse, middle of verse two. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You know what that means? All those paintings of the handsome guy with the blue eyes and that perfect hair. Forget it. Just an average looking dude. I like that myself being that as well. No special beauty. Verse 3. Whoever this guy is doesn't go well. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. Do you ever see something so gruesome that you just go, oh, I, I can't even look at that? Did you see Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? Did any of you go like this? Like, oh, I can't even... My wife, and we went with another couple, and the women got up and went to the restroom for a while. They just, I can't handle this, I'm too bloody. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, in the verses that follow, there are several words that are synonyms for the word sin. Watch. Surely he, whoever this suffering servant is, took up our infirmities, that's sin, carried our sorrows. There's only sorrow in on the earth because of sin. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. Look at verse five, but he was what? Pierced, you mean like pierced here and in the feet? Yes, and in his sight, yes pierced, strange word to use, right? Why was he pierced, Isaiah? He was pierced for our synonym for sin, transgressions. He was crushed for our synonym for sin, iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Boy, there's an ironic statement. By his wounds, see all those wounds on him? That's how I'm healed spiritually wow the sacrificial death of the lord jesus we all like sheep verse six have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way and the lord that's god the father has laid on him jesus the iniquity another word for sin on of us all he laid on jesus god the father did all the sin of the world on this figure Still future when Isaiah's writing. God revealed all this to him. Isaiah wrote it down. He was a, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb. How interesting. On the very day, Passover, that they're slaughtering lambs, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was seven total farces of trials. Do you remember? No evidence, no chance for the defense to present their case. They just decided, crucify him. Remember? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? If I said, did you hear about so-and-so? He was cut off from the land of the living. What does it mean? Died right? Why was he cut off for the land of the living? For the transgression, another synonym for sin, of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave. Wait a minute, who gets a grave? Dead guys, right? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Who does he die with? Criminals, the other people on the cross, remember? And with the rich in his death, where does he go to to his grave, Joseph of Arimathea, right? Remember, lets him have the tomb. Assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was, no, was any deceit in his mouth. Translation, sinless, whoever this dude is that was pierced, that died for our sins. you getting a picture here? Who in human history could that be? Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a what? Guilt offering. That's a sacrificial term from the religion of uh, Judaism. He makes his life a guilt offering. Here it comes. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Wait a minute. I thought you said he died. Well, this is the resurrection. He will see his offspring. Offspring, how because he rose from the dead. Are you saying he had children? Yes, look in this room, look on Zoom right now, he's got a bunch of kids. Right? I'm one of them. He will see his offspring, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after the suffering of his soul. He will see the light of life, resurrection, and be satisfied by his knowledge. By knowing him, my righteous servant will justify. Many, and he will bear their iniquities. There it is again, the word for sin. You get the picture? Whoever this suffering dude is that gets um, uh, abused and beaten and despised, he saves people. Therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great and will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto what? death is there any question that he died whoever this guy is how could he be a hero if he died only if he rises from the dead and was numbered with the transgressors with sinners for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors okay now quickly go to the left psalm 22. this is taking way longer than i had planned but it's important and if you don't like it you can leave but the doors are locked Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm, listen, written by David in the first person, meaning when you write in the first person, it's this I went to the store, I did this, this was given to me. That's first person. You got it? Psalm 22, God gives David this psalm and says, Write this down. I'm confident David is writing what God gave him, thinking, What is this? It's a psalm in the first person, as if the person writing is being crucified. Watch. Psalm 22. Why are you doing all this, Joe? Wait. Because it says, according to the scriptures. In Paul's saying, according to the Old Testament scriptures, he was supposed to die and rise from the dead. That's what I'm trying to show you. Psalm 22. Before we begin, and some of you are already reading ahead, I see you. The Jews did not have the numbers for the Psalms. The Jewish scholars at this time, when Jesus was alive, didn't say, you know, in Psalm 41 and Psalm 22, they would refer to each Psalm by the first line, like this. If I said, you know that song they sing at baseball games, you know, "Oh Say Can You See? You know what I mean, right? It's the national anthem, right? Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that? The reason he says it is because he now is carrying all that guilt and God, his father, every other time in his life, he calls God Father, 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 until he's suffering with all that guilt and shame and sin. And he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn his back on Jesus. Okay, separation from God. That's what hell is in a sense. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's like shouting out to the rabbis who are watching and anybody that knew the Old Testament. It's like shouting out, go look up Psalm 22. My God, my God, why? They would instantly know maybe when they got home, if they had a copy of the scriptures, they would read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning? Okay. Skip down to verse uh, six. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. Human birth. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Don't be far from me. For trouble's near, there's no one to help. Bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. This is a way of saying Gentiles. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Verse 13. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my boin- bones sorry, are out of joint. The hanging on the cross, the bones from the weight of the body. My heart has turned to wax it has melted away within me. My strength has dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Do you remember? And you lay me in the dust of death. Remember when he says, I thirst? Dogs have surrounded me. Another term for Gentiles, for Jews. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have what? pierced my hands and my feet. What a coincidence that that's in there. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Listen, this was written centuries before the Persians, who are now the Iranians, invented crucifixion when David writes this there is no crucifixion piercing hands and feet God tells him to write it and David goes okay they've pierced my hands and my feet I can count all my bones I don't mean to be gross here but they whipped him to the point that the flesh in many cases is gone and you're almost looking at a skeleton you can see bones I can count all my bones plus the pain okay sorry to gross you out there let's move on People stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Verse 18. What another lucky guess. Just kidding. Okay, skipping down. Mm, um, You can read this whole thing. Uh, Verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will call, proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for he has done it. Do you know what that is in Greek? That's Hebrew. Translation, it's it is finished, which is the last thing he said on the cross. Okay. Okay. You say, can we move, skip on? No, we're not done. Go to Psalm 16. Sorry. Those of you that are asleep, you're just getting some good rest right now. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Think about that. What does that mean? You won't abandon me to the grave. Who gets put in graves? Dead people. You. He's, this is the confidence the Messiah is talking to his father saying, I know that you won't abandon me to the grave. Um, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. That's what dead bodies do. I don't think Jesus's body decayed. Are you saying he wasn't dead? No, he was totally dead. And yet, On the third day, he rose, listen, physically from the dead. When he appears to others, he eats with them. He says, Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have, or balloons for that matter, whatever that is, balloons. Um, Okay, so I'm just trying to give you an example. You could also go to Jonah 2, Hosea 6. Um, By the way, of all things, The Pharisees ask for a sign from Jesus. And do you know what he says? No sign will be given you. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But he says, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but I'll tell you what. I will give you one sign. It's the sign of Jonah, which is, uh, he's saying, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, meaning it's like a tomb. Jonah thinks, I'm dead, I'm gone. So shall the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. You want a sign? I'll give you the ultimate sign, you fakers, he says to the Pharisees. I'm added that, I'm sorry. The ultimate sign is, when you kill me and I've been on the third day in a grave, I'm coming back, just like Jonah. Spit from the whale, the earth's going to spit me out. Okay. Other scriptures. There's so many more. Oh gosh, do we want to do this? Yeah, we have to do it. It's too good. Genesis. I have to censor myself, you know, Genesis 22. You got to go there. This is so good. Genesis 22. How are we doing on time? Pretty good. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. That's good. On zoom. Anybody sleeping? Amen. I see an amen sign Two amen signs. All right. Okay. Abraham, listen. I'm going to try to go fast. I could spend six weeks in Genesis 22. Abraham has been called by God. He's going to create a whole nation called the Jews out of Abraham. Abraham is old. His wife is barren. They can't have kids. They're really, really way too old to have kids. No offense to those of you that are that age. And God told him, you're going to have so many ancestors. You're not going to, descendants, I mean, you're not going to believe it. You're going to have a son. Eventually, he has a son, and Abraham is so in love with his son, Isaac, it's almost bordering on worship. So God has to test Abraham, chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Pause. I just want to say, This whole story is a metaphor for God, the father playing that role is Abraham who takes his only son who he loves, his only begotten son. Follow? Watch. Take your only son, your only take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the region in of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about what kill your son. Prove to me, says God, that you love me and will obey me even when I tell you to do what seems impossible. Between verse 2 and verse 3, if I was Abraham, there would be paragraphs of, you can't be serious, right? There's got to be some other way. Did I hear you right? But Abraham heard him. Then, verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. By the way, Moriah, it turns out, the hills of Moriah are outside of Jerusalem. It's Calvary, it's the same place. Okay, so for Abraham, he knows I have to obey God. I love my son. I have to kill him. God said to sacrifice him. Now, keep in mind, if you're thinking, this is so cruel of God, not a hair of Isaac's head is hurt, right? Before Abraham can do it, God says, wait, now I know you really hear me and obey me. Okay. But for Abraham, at this part of the story, as soon as God said, take your son, Isaac was dead in Abraham's mind. It hadn't happened yet, but it's already, he's already mourning because he loves his son, Isaac, but he's obeying God. So the next day he packs up, gets a donkey, interesting animal, riding in on a donkey. Okay. Um, two servants and his son, Isaac. He cuts some wood for the burnt offering. He sets out for the place. On the third day, what an interesting phrase in verse four another coincidence. It's no coincidence. What happens on the third day in Christianity? Oh, yeah. What seems like death becomes resurrection. Watch. On the third day, Abraham looked and saw the place in the distance. Listen to the faith of Abraham in verse 5. He said to his servants, remember he brought two servants with him, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We, that's the boy and I, will worship, and then I will come back to you alone. Is that what it says? What does it say? We will worship, and we, the boy and I, will come back to you. Total faith. He knows God said, through Isaac, I'm going to bless you. All nations will be blessed. One of those descendants coming through Isaac. You just told me to kill Isaac, but you told me I'll be blessed through him. Isaac's got to have kids, so if I'm going to kill him, you're going to raise him. I can tell total faith. We will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering. We're running out of time. Joe needs to talk faster. He took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. He what? The wood for the burnt offering is going to build an altar. Who carries the wood up to his own death? Isaac. Who carries the wood to his own crucifixion? Jesus, the cross. Isaac's playing the part of Jesus. He doesn't know it, but he is. A- Abraham, uh, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, fa- Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb that we're going to sacrifice for the burnt offering? We're missing something, Dad, a key ingredient who is the lamb? It's Isaac. Isaac, Abraham doesn't say, you're it, dude. You are the lamb. Abraham says, listen to the faith. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And centuries later, he did. Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place, God had told them about Abraham, built an altar there, arranged the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar. If you're Isaac, aren't you going, Dad, what are you doing here? You notice? Silent. Isaac doesn't speak. He binds him and puts him on the altar. Then he reached out his hand, verse 10, and took out the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. You've not withheld from me your son, your only son. You didn't withhold from me the thing I thought you loved the most. Oh, I do, but you're more important, God. So we need to have a sacrifice, and he's not going to kill Isaac. God himself will provide the lamb. Let's see what happens. Abraham looked up. And there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. Wait, what's a ram? Oh, it's a male lamb. It's a male sheep. Caught in a thicket. What's a thicket again? Thorns. That's what it is. You mean like a crown of, yes, that's what I mean. He saw a ram caught by it. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. Most important word in the whole chapter. Instead of his son. Isaac does this. Right? Oh, someone, a substitutionary sacrifice is going to occur. There is going to be a sacrifice, a shedding of blood. But it's not Isaac. Isaac thinks, wow, God provided the lamb. So Abraham... Called that place, verse 14, the Lord will provide. To this day, as it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And centuries later, on the mountain outside of Jerusalem called Calvary, it was provided. Only that time, God the Father had his son ready to be crucified, and no one stayed the hand. It had to happen for the good of mankind, right? What's your point in all this, Joe? We've lost track of... Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians. You remember 1 Corinthians 15. (laughs) He died for our sins according to the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, there's a thousand New Testament scriptures we could go to. That's an exaggeration. I'm talking Jewish Old Testament scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We've already discussed the buried, right? Because Isaiah 53, Psalm 22 talks about graves, remember? Psalm 16, you won't abandon me to the grave. He's going to die, he's going to be buried, and he's going to rise. We saw that with he will see his descendants and all of that, and the light of life. All Old Testament scriptures raised on the third day according to the scriptures, uh, verse four, and we're running out of time. I got to look at my notes here because I'm skipping all kinds of good stuff. Um, so besides the scriptures, there's all the things in the scriptures that are pictures of or examples of or types of the crucif- of the sacrifice of Jesus. Like what? Like the Passover lamb. The blood protects them from the judgment of the angel of death. Do you remember Moses says, I want to see your face to God. And God says, you can't see me. No man shall see God and live. But I'll tell you what, I'll pass by you and you can see my backside as I pass by, says God. I'm going to hide you, Moses. Where does he hide him? In the cleft in the rock. You say, what's a cleft? You ever see people with a cleft chin, that little indentation thing there. Some actors have it. Uh, Michael Jackson had one surgically made. But anyway, what's the cleft in the rock? You know what it is? It's a place where the rock is broken. That's where to hide, Moses. You hide where the rock is broken. Wait, who's the rock? Christ. It's a picture. I'm saying there's a thousand of those in the Old Testament. There's a rock in the wilderness. They're thirsty, the Jews, when they're wandering in the wilderness. And Moses says, They're hungry. What do I do? And God says, Take your staff and smack that rock. Remember? And water will come out. The rock, Jesus Christ, was smacked later on. That's a Joe word, not a Bible word. And the water of life comes out and flows. Okay, we're totally lost now. That's too bad. You weren't listening. Let's move on. Buried. And last, next week, we're going to talk about, well, we have a few minutes. We'll start at least, that he was buried. And remember, he was buried, and there was a huge stone rolled in front of the temple. There was also a Roman seal put on that stone. That was a wax thing that they would heat up with fire and put the Roman seal on that tomb. It wasn't that the wax was so strong it would prevent somebody from moving it. It would take several men to move the stone. What that seal meant was this is the official seal of the Roman government. You mess with this seal, you break this seal, you're in big trouble with us. They put guards at the temple, uh, I'm sorry, guards at the tomb, and he rises from the dead and starts appearing to people. That's what we're going to talk about next week. We get to the eyewitnesses, New Testament, of the resurrection. Next week, we're also going to talk about all the theories. I already gave you one, right? He didn't really die. He died. Okay, the disciples stole the body. First of all, how? Second of all, why? Let's go get the dead body. So they can lie about the gospel and say, he really, he rose from the dead. We saw him, really. And then later on, their lives are at stake for preaching the gospel and they say sorry we believe it go ahead and kill us all of them is that likely we're going to look at all the appearances of christ after the resurrection one to more than 500 people theory another theory well what those are is mass hallucinations you can look up hallucinations in a a, online you know There's such a thing as hallucinations, drugs, other reasons people hallucinate. If you're really tired driving, you can hallucinate weird things. Whoa, you know, there's no such thing as a mass hallucination where everybody sees the same thing. Well, um, he didn't really die. Okay, he did die. Okay, here's another one. We'll talk about these next week. Somebody got crucified, but it wasn't Jesus. The guy looked just like Jesus. Now you laugh, but do you know who says that? Muslims. You know who they think got crucified? Judas, who looked just like Jesus. And it fooled everybody. Come on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time we could be in your word. What a wonderful faith, Father. It's airtight. You said it. You gave it to people 2,000 years ago, and it's been handed down and handed down and handed down, and now it's in our generation, and it's up to us, Father, to hold on to it, to study it, to memorize it, to remember it and share it with others, to pray, to meet together in church, to study in small groups, to fellowship, and to believe it and live by it, God. People have done so for 2,000 years. The proof Is astounding in your word, and we've only scratched the surface tonight. Thank you that you didn't leave us in the dark. You've given us abundant evidence to believe what we believe. And yet, we ask the question, Father, why do we doubt sometimes? Why do we doubt your goodness or that you hear our prayers when we know that you do? Give us the faith that sees this evidence and absolutely trusts you. Indeed, the disciples had to wait. Part of three days for the good news. Give us the patience of faith that waits on you, Father, in all things. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. May they change the way we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know tonight. It's really important. Those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. God bless.